Mindfulness Mode 260. If anybody's honest with themselves about what's their real resistance to meditation, is that they're not ready to hear or they don't want to hear uh, the thoughts that are going to come out. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. It is so good to have you with us today, Mindful Tribe. Would you do me a huge favor? Would you consider helping me out? This would be amazing. If you if you truly like the show, Mindfulness Mode, would you tell your friends about it? Have them subscribe and and you know that way they can stay connected and if you tell your friends that is one of the best ways to promote what I do here on mindfulness mode so I can keep doing it keep pumping out two episodes a week so I would truly appreciate that last time I featured Mr. Passion so many people struggle because they don't know their own passion and my guest thoroughly understands that whole subject of passion because he's lived through it. He's had his own ups and downs. He's had all kinds of experiences. I think you'll enjoy this episode. I truly do. Check out Mustafa Hamwi. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com slash 259. Mindful Tribe, we just celebrated Thanksgiving here in Canada a few days ago on the weekend, and whoa, what an amazing weekend it was. I can tell you, I feel all kinds of gratitude, and you are a main part of it. All the listeners, all you you amazing people out there in Mindful Tribe who really, truly enjoy the show. One of the things we did on the weekend, Darlene and I attended my niece's wedding on Saturday. It was a beautiful, old-fashioned, country, barn-style wedding. It was incredibly picturesque. So much fun. Let me tell you about my beautiful niece, Ashley. She's a woman who, in in the kindest way ever, she'll tell you exactly how she feels. She'll share her deep down opinion if you go to her and talk to to her about something she will be genuine honest upfront it's not always necessarily easy to hear when people are like that but you know to me that's a powerful aspect of being mindful and if you just listened to my last episode you know that You know, as part of the celebration of mindfulness and Thanksgiving, I've offered you a Mindfulness Mode t-shirt. So I've just decided to extend the offer. I really want you to have one of these shirts. And I'm even going to pay for the shipping. All I ask is that you send me an email to bruce at mindfulnessmode.com and include one specific aspect of the show that you really enjoy put t-shirt in the subject line and if you're one of the first 10 people who respond as a listener from today's show I'll send you a t-shirt simple as that and I really want to do this I really want to send you that gift I really want you to have the benefit of being reminded and helping to remind others about mindfulness mode so please send me that email to bruce at mindfulnessmode.com Today I'm interviewing a guy who, in my opinion, is a master communicator. He has the special knack of knowing exactly how to share critical information in a concise, 
easy to understand format. I'm sure that's why he's a world-class speaker and trainer. He's young, he's brilliant, and he's powerfully mindful. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Majid Magaraban. Hey, Mindful Tribe, this is an awesome day. And it's an awesome day because I have a world-class speaker with me today. He's amazing. His, his uh, ability to convey ideas and thoughts, it's just top-notch. It really is. Today, I have Majid Magarban with me today. And so, well, Majid, here's the question. Are you in mindfulness mode today? Yes, sir, Bruce. I am. I'm fully present. I'm with you right here, right now. That is terrific. I'm so glad to hear it. Now, I want to share a little bit about you, Majid, with Mindful Tribe. And this is a little bit about what I came up with. Majid Magarban is a professional speaker. We know that. He's an author. He's an entrepreneur. And get this. After starting five businesses, he then turned 21. Hmm. Okay, how about that? starting five businesses and then turning 21. Man, that's pretty cool. Majid now helps companies succeed faster using the entrepreneurial mindset, which is not something that everybody kind of gets at first. But we're going to talk about that on the interview. Majid is known for being an energizing keynote speaker who empowers his audience to take action because that's what it's all about. His unique perspective on business leadership has taken him across the globe, guiding organizations such as the World Wildlife Fund, Toyota, Vanguard, Loblaw, to achieve more faster. Now, his story-filled talks demonstrate how to use an enthusiastic startup spirit, which is what we're talking about, this entrepreneurial spirit, to improve the working climate in the corporate world. So this is really all cool stuff, Majid. I can't wait to talk about it. So you're in mindfulness mode, but let's talk first, just to make sure we're on the same page, more or less. What does mindfulness mean to you? Good question, Bruce. Um, you know, I think of the the meditations and the monks and, and all yeah. that. Uh, but in a practical sense, to me, it means being present. And that means not being thinking about something else that's outside of the experience and the future and the past. And I think what makes a great coach, what makes a great speaker, what makes a great entrepreneur is their ability to focus their presence for the task at hand or for the speech at hand, if it may be. So I think that is my working use of the word mindfulness is to have that presence and focus. Well, certainly you have to be present, and you were obviously present during your teens because you started a number of businesses while everybody else was in high school, you know, playing intramurals or they were out, you know, hanging out with their with their buddies. What was your first business that you started, Majid? Bruce, it was a hot summer day. I was 16 years old, riding my bike to the park, and I stopped at the snow cone stand to order a snow cone, and... I saw there was a sign on the building with two words on it that changed my life forever. Those two words were for sale. And so the story continues. I buy this $12,000 snow cone business and really fall in love with entrepreneurship and uh, ended up getting a loan and writing a business plan with the bank and 
So that was my first real business. And how old were you then, Majid? How old were you then? I was 16, 16 at the time, and I was actually wanting to get a job. I would have rather they just hire me, but this was kind of my way of, oh, I could, I guess I could get, I guess I'd have a job if I owned the business. You bought a job. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And do you think a lot of people who call themselves entrepreneurs buy their job? And is that really entrepreneurship? You know, that's a good question. I think people have different definitions of entrepreneurship. Do you have to run a business? Do you have to have employees? I define entrepreneurship as solving problems profitably. And so I think that definition can apply to even an employee who doesn't own a business and they're being entrepreneurial. They're being proactive. They're being creative. They're being solution oriented. Um, so I'm not I'm not going to say if someone is an entrepreneur, entrepreneur or not, whether or not they own a business or a physical location or if they're even making money. I think it's a more of a mindset of uh, a can do attitude, problem solving attitude with the thought of how do we do this profitably? So you've always been a problem solver. Does that mean you're a math and science guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, math and science definitely my strong suit. Uh, but you know, I think you apply a good deal of creativity to problem solving. You know, people say, "Well, what's the one right answer?" That's because our education system says there is a question. There's one right answer because that's the only way we can do the tests and the scores and all that. But to be an entrepreneur, to be a problem solver, you think, you know, maybe there's five answers or 10 answers. And how can we make this bigger, better, faster, cheaper, all that? For sure. Well, what's with our education system right now? Let's talk about that. How many people are graduating from high school, going to post-secondary education, spending, you know, 60, 80 grand to get a degree, and then... They're working at a McDonald's or they're work- not that there's anything wrong with that. But if you spend that much money on a degree in a specialized area, you want to be working in that area, making some decent money. What's going on? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I come from a, a family of educators. Do you? Uh, my mother is a teacher. My grandmother's a teacher. My aunt and uncle are college professors. We talk about education all the time. Right. So that's what got me excited about learning and being a trainer and being a speaker because you have to understand the learning. But in terms of the education system, you have to understand that it was actually created to prevent people from having jobs because it was actually the Ku Klux Klan in the United States said, all these kids are getting our factory jobs. We want them to put them somewhere else. Where can we put them? How about put them in school all day? And actually they managed, they, they designed the school system based on the factory. You know, we got the sure. this class and the bell rings. You go to that class, the bell rings. We want them to all be standardized. And if we have a defect, we hit the defect button and send them back to the beginning of the line. Tell them to redo the Yeah, the we process, don't want anybody right? standing out. We don't want anybody doing anything that doesn't fit with the flow of things, do we? That's right. That's right. So, you know, it's built on memorization and regurgitation. Remember the facts for the test. You can empty your brain right after the test. And then you get into college and the the university system, the promise is a degree is going to give you a better job, a higher paying job. The return on investment is going to be there. And like you said, sometimes they graduate and the job's not there. So what you learn in a university setting that you don't necessarily learn in a high school setting is you learn how to think. Okay. You learn how to think and you learn how to solve problems. We don't really teach that so much in the high school. From my experience, it's more of a memorizing and and remembering things, which we don't need now because we got the phone with all the information. Right. True. What we need to do is think what are the questions we need to be asking. So did you go to university? I did. I got my stamp of approval. I have an official degree in entrepreneurship. I'm now officially qualified, according to Washington University in St. Louis, to be an entrepreneur. Of course, you don't need that degree. You really just need customers 
to be in business. Sure. Well, you grew up in the United States, but you live in Canada now. What moved you to come to Canada? What happened there? Bruce, I fell in love. Oh, is that what it was? With a Canadian girl? lady in Africa. A okay. Canadian girl. She was on vacation. I was on vacation. We fell in love. Okay. So you were born in the United States then? Yes, sir. And uh, you are now a person who lives in Canada. Is there much difference? Yeah, I like to say it's like the United States, less guns and free health care. Yeah. That's the big difference. Don't know any, I don't know a single person with a gun, uh, although back home in Carbondale, Illinois, I probably fewer, more of my friends have guns than don't. Right. Um, but here in Canada, I don't know a single person who owns a gun. No. And the free health care thing is great. No, I don't know very many people that own a gun either, except a few for hunting. And I certainly have never owned a gun myself and never mm. would want to. So, yeah, it's very different in that way. I'm really glad that you uh, made the move and that you're in Ottawa. Well, tell me, tell me this. What was life like for you when you were a little kid? You were six, you were seven, you were eight. Yeah. You know, that was before the, the snow cone thing going on yeah. what what did you think about back then tell me about a day in the life of Majid back when you were like seven years old well the thing that stands out from my childhood is that I never went to the same school two years in a row until high school okay we moved a lot uh-huh. and that meant that I had to learn the skill of reinventing myself uh, of meeting new making new friends uh, I was always the new kid, perpetually the new kid, right? And I even moved from starting California, moved to the Midwest, moved back to California. And there's different dialects. There's different, um, For sure. you know, different slang. And so I became a master of uh, fitting in sort of as a survival technique. Did you ever have problems with your confidence? Yeah. Yeah, being the new kid. Uh, everyone already knew everybody, sure. you know, and so, um, I learned to use it as an asset. Did you develop tools and tactics to use? And you're, you're thinking, well, that new school's coming, so I'm going to be doing this or I'll do that. Yeah, did. did you, I what did. were some of those tools? Um, I learned this very early on. I think my, my dad would continue to remind me every time I was going into a new environment. What I learned was that you're the product of the people you spend the most time with. Uh, I was given this lesson very early on in my life and I was very fortunate for that because there was a simple way for me to figure out who the top students were in my class. Whenever the test scores come back, you get the 100, the A, right, the A plus. And I would find the kids who were actually comparing test scores to each other. One person got a 100%, one person got a 105 with the bonus question. And so, I, you know, we call them the nerds, the geeks, the smart kids. Yeah. And I would just intentionally approach them. Very intentional about I want to pick and choose the people I'm with so that I can rep, rep, um, I can be like them. And I was able to, you know, I believe that, that kids, their motivation is based on pleasing their parents. Okay. You know, we, wanna, we want the respect and love and attention of our parents. And it just so happened that my parents cared most about my grades. They didn't care so much about my sports. They didn't care so much about my musical talents or artistic talents. So I kind of biased my strategies towards what's going to get my parents love and appreciation and that was hanging out with the smart kids and what did you love to do did you love to do sports did you love to do music 
You know, I loved socializing. I loved to be part of different clubs and, and to be a leader in those clubs. I was, if I was a member of a club, I'm going to be the president. That was okay. kind of my mindset. Yeah. Um, and so I got to know everybody. Um, I got into theater. I got into cross country and tennis. I, I was very diversified, Renaissance high schooler, re- Renaissance junior high schooler. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, you know, I alluded to this in the intro when I we talked about entrepreneurial spirit and how bringing that to the corporate world can really change the way people think and it can really improve the whole dynamic in the workplace. How does that work? Why is that a factor? Well, you know, uh, to understand workplace culture, you have to understand social culture and we're social animals, and when we're put into the workplace environment, there's a hierarchy. Everybody has a boss, and that boss has a disproportionate power on our happiness and our survival. When we think about the boss can fire us, then the whole strategy of survival and thriving in the organization is make the boss happy, don't get fired. So then how do we innovate? How do we improve? How do we question what we think needs to be improved upon? Um, and this can feel unsafe in certain cultures where you present a new idea and they say, that's dumb, we tried that before, or, or, oh, great idea, you start doing that, and now you have even more work to do. Right. So to apply this um, mindset of creativity and speaking up and trying new things and being innovative requires understanding the psychology and communication within the organization and creating some strategies for communicating effectively without letting the fear of uh, disapproval or criticizing your idea paralyze you and stop you from actually doing something innovative. I see. I see. That makes perfect sense when you explain it that way. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, well, Majid, I always ask a question about whether you were ever bullied. And I know you're always, sounds like you're always a leader, that kind of thing. But, you know, it relates to mindfulness and how you, how you handle your mindfulness can affect how you deal with bullying. Were you ever bullied or were you a bully? Can you tell us a story about that? Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this question because I know you're, this is part of your mission. Right. And I don't think that I was bullied when I was a kid. Um, I had a pretty strong mindset and pretty strong attitude. Mm-hmm. And what I think is maybe more of a, a present feeling in my childhood and, and now is the pressure to be normal. Uh-huh. The pressure to be like everybody else. Uh, when you're an outlier, a high performer, you are by nature different than most people. Sure. And you make other people uncomfortable. So what I was able to do successfully was find other highly driven people so that I was normal amongst my peers. But what I found that I received some criticism for was ambition and drive and being teased for being so focused on you know accomplishment and not doing what I thought actually what I thought the cool kids were doing is they were skipping skipping class, doing drugs, being bullies and being jocks. Right. And I was kind of envious of their coolness. Okay. Where I was like studying and getting good grades. Right. So, you know, what I felt I've always felt as a pressure is try to be normal and I, and what I found the solution is to make my normal high performance so that I, I do feel normal amongst the tribe. We were talking earlier before we hit record about the Archangel Summit where, you know, everybody there is a superhero entrepreneur. You feel at home and with your family when you're there. 
Whereas when you go back home to normal, you feel like an alien. So in an effort to fit in, did you ever do drugs of any kind? Uh, I have done drugs of several kind. Um, probably as fitting in is part of the deal, for sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because there are entrepreneurs who will say, you know what, I can get more focused or I can get more centered or grounded if I, you know, just smoke a little bit of marijuana or if I do this or if I do that. Everybody has a different opinion. Some people feel, no, I want to be present now and I don't want to use a substance to get there. But I just thought I'd ask you your views on that. Yeah, well, it's funny. I took some uh, took some high-performance mushrooms this morning uh, from this company called Four Sigmatic. It's supposed to make you smarter and more focused. So I'm, I'm on the high-performance drugs right now. I've got a bulletproof coffee in my system with some medium-chain triglyceride oils and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, there's definitely a lot of pressure around uh, drinking, smoking marijuana. Yeah. I made the choice recently, only a few months ago, to be off of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I have found socially that what my experience has been is people kind of take a step back like, oh, so what are we going to do then if we're not just going to drink? Right. Um, and then the conversation becomes kind of envious. Like, so how'd you do it? Like, how'd you? Oh. And I'll tell your listeners, there's a book called The Easy Way to Quit Drinking by Alan Carr. I was recommended the book, read the audio. By the end of it, I was like, oh, this is easy. I don't ever need to drink again. Fantastic. I don't miss it at all. Um, But I think people confuse drugs, alcohol with creating connection, but I think it actually just numbs the senses. It doesn't actually connect because now I've had several sober sober nights amongst people who've been drinking. I don't think there's a higher level of connection there. I think it's actually disconnection um, and numbing feelings. So like if you don't want to feel your feelings, it's a good thing to get on the drugs, right? So you don't have to feel the feelings. So certainly there's a lot of social pressure. There's a lot of brainwashing with advertising to think that you're manly if you drink and you're cool if you drink and all this. So you kind of have to be conscious to what some of the manipulating factors are that drives that kind of behavior. Well, I really find alcohol uh, puts me into this lower state where I don't feel like I just don't feel good. You know, yeah, I may feel numb, but I don't, I, I just feel like it's almost like a, a depressive feeling. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of felt that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just push that feeling down and thought, oh, well, everybody else is drinking, so I'll have a couple of beers, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I would just feel every time that, oh, that's just kind of a feeling I don't totally enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I don't really embrace that either for that reason yeah you know yeah so i wanted to ask you do you meditate you know i do from time to time i i took this uh meditation course in thailand mm-hmm. at a at a um buddhist temple yes it nearly killed me oh we did weren't it? allowed to talk we weren't oh, allowed to talk and i'm i speak for a living yeah i'm a professional speaker right um we weren't allowed to talk. We were not allowed to listen to music. We weren't allowed to journal, meditate all day, every day. For how long did you do it? I lasted for four days. I was supposed to be there for a week, but I bailed. So what kinds of thoughts did you have? How did it, like, what was that feeling? Was it a feeling of desperation? Mm-hmm. So I have like this voice going in my head that wants to speak out, speak to other people, I'm, I've always been so curious to, you know, hear other people's story. Where are you from? You know, and I, this is my normal. So 
So to not be able to do that was a, just a real challenge. And then what creeped in was all of the thoughts that I maybe haven't given the space to, to think and hear and some that I don't want to hear, thoughts of inadequacy, thoughts of fear, right? That if I just keep busy and keep going with conversations and with food and being late to the next thing, that you never have to listen to those things. So that stillness brings out, and I think if, if anybody's honest with themselves about what's their real resistance to meditation, is that they're not ready to hear or they don't want to hear uh, the thoughts that are going to come out. Right. That's why it was so hard for me. Wow. Yeah. I think it would be really difficult for me if I were around other people. I meditate every day, mm -hmm. but I'm not around other people when I do that. And I meditate for 20 minutes. And I found that over time, as in years, I believe that that has caused me to be more uh, reflective, more grounded, to be a better listener, be more in touch with myself and my own needs. You know, a whole yeah. lot of things, really. Mm -hmm. That's but, beautiful, yeah. But, you know, I, I've never done what you described. I've never been in a group of people and tried to go for days without speaking, which I know is a technique. Yeah. But that's interesting to hear your feedback yeah. about that. That tends to be the way that I am able to do things is in a program with some support, with some sure. accountability. Um, otherwise, I'll sit down... I'll start meditating, and then the first distraction, if I'm up and walking, and before I realize it, oh, I'm not meditating anymore. But what I learned from that experience was that you can meditate, not necessarily in a eyes closed, seated position, but you can meditate while you're walking. You can meditate while you're eating. So the way you meditate while you're walking is you say in your head, left foot, right foot, left foot. And the idea is you're not thinking about anything but walking. Right. Nothing in the future, nothing in the past. And then with eating, pick up the food on the fork, put the food in the mouth, chew the food, and you're just like curious about the flavors and just super present to the food. Best tasting food you'll ever have in your life is the food that you're highly present for the experience, right? Right. So you take that philosophy and, and say that meditation doesn't need to be a thing that you do while you're not doing everything else. Meditation can be a state of mind that you're present for all experiences, and I've brought that into my speaking, and I think one of the things that takes my speaking to the next level and that I coach my clients on for, for public speaking is you've got to be the most present speaker they've ever seen, that they feel that you've got nowhere to be but right here on that stage, and that you're totally connected to the audience and not worried about, is my PowerPoint not working right? So when you take that belief that meditation can be part of everything you do, it becomes a mindfulness way of living instead of a thing that you do for a few minutes and then you get back to real life. I really like that. That is that is very, very eye-opening. And I think it will be to a lot of you, Mindful Tribe, as you listen to this. Yes, you don't just meditate for a few minutes in the morning and then just leave it behind. Yeah, you have to have that sense of presence with you that will develop as you become more of a meditator, I believe. But you've really put it clearly. Now, I want to ask you another question, and that is about your book. You wrote a book, I think you've written a couple of books, but The Small Business Trap, and I know you co-authored another book, but how mindful do you have to be to write a book? Because so many authors have you know, struggled with this. What was it like for you? That's an interesting question, and I can give you um, examples of two ways of writing a book. Um, the way I wrote my first book is what 
uh, you know, I think I was 23 and this was the co-authored book. Right. And I tried to take everything I had learned at the ripe age of 23 and cram it into a book. And I tried to think about all the people that are going to read the book. Bruce might read the book one day. My mom might read the book. Uh, and it was positioned for young entrepreneurial high school students called right. Winning at Life. So I thought the students are going to read the book and the teachers are going to read the book and principal's going to read the book. And it's very hard to write for so many different audiences with so many different thoughts. So that was the way of doing the first book. It took me two years to do it. And I don't think it really had much of an impact because it just wasn't written in a way that could be easily read and really engaged. The second book I wrote was with the author incubator, Angela Loria, who you would have met at yes. the, um, the Archangel Summit. Yes, I did. She taught me a very profound method, very simple. But the idea is you think about one reader. Okay. This is the ideal reader, the one that you really want to speak to. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the way we write this book is we write it so that this one ideal reader will pick up the phone and call me and hire me for my services. So I wrote it like a love letter as if uh, I had met her at the moment that she needed my help the most. And I totally could see her entire life. I could see her problem in great detail. And then I just read that book like I was having, I wrote that book like I was having a conversation with her. And I actually spoke the book into my phone and had it transcribed. Oh, did you? And I wrote the whole thing in two days. Wow. Spent one day getting really clear on what the strategy of the book is. And then two days, basically, like I'm having a conversation with Kathy. That's like my ideal reader. I have a total description of who Kathy is. Mm -hmm. And that is an extremely mindful way to write a book is you write it like you're having a conversation with one person. So instead of taking everything you know, trying to cram it into a book, you take everything you know and you apply it to one specific challenge from one specific person and you write that book like a conversation. What great insight. I just love that. I wish I could take the credit. That's Angela Loria's The Difference Process. Well, thank you for sharing that from Angela because well, it obviously made a huge difference for you, so I really appreciate that. Now, as we shift toward the end of the interview, Majid, I want to ask five questions as part of the quick answer section here. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness in your life, Majid? I'd say that's my wife. Um, and because I'm always focused on the future and the goals and driven, she is a model of uh, blissful presence, contentment in the moment, not so worried with the hustle and the future, but just like enjoy the journey. So how has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's allowed me to um, use my emotions as information signals and data. Okay. By being curious and present to, oh, I'm experiencing anger right now. Instead of having the instinctive reaction of, I'm angry, I'm going to go break some dishes or I'm going to go yell at somebody. Just that split second realization of, oh, I'm experiencing an emotion. This is information for me. What should I do with it? Versus allowing emotion to control my body. I think mindfulness gives me that power. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindful living. I'm so glad you asked. I learned this thing about breathing. It's amazing. Okay. When we're being hunted by a predator as cavemen, we drop our breathing really shallow so we can't be heard and so we can hear better. Right. And when we're totally cool and relaxed and the birds are chirping and the water's, dri the water's going by, we breathe deeply. 
So when we breathe deeply, we're telling our body there's no predator there. And I believe it's the fastest and easiest and cheapest way to get instantly mindful, take a deep breath, and you're already there. Yes, I recommend it, Mindful Tribe. You know Mm -hmm. that. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness or related to mindfulness, what would that be? You know, I read the book, Eckhart Tolle's book called The Power of Now. Yes. I read it in a beautiful setting in Ubud, Bali, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And it's written as a conversation between a student and a master. So it's very concrete, very conversational instead of, you know, super philosophical, super abstract. So The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. All right. Can you share an app which helps you be more mindful no matter what kind of app it is? Yeah, I use the one called Calm. Yes. Calm, and I like it because it can give you three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, or ten minutes, right? And you just know how much time you want to go into it. You push the button, and you just follow along. Guided meditation. You'll keep track of how many you've done in a week. Uh, Real simple. I think it's free. Calm. Yeah. Well, speaking of time flying by, Majid, the time has flown by in this interview. I mean, it's such a pleasure to talk with you because, like, you just have so much insight, so much, so much wisdom. So I, I just really appreciate you coming on, on Mindfulness Mode today. How can Mindful Tribe connect with you and learn more about what you have to offer? Well, thanks for asking, Bruce. And it's been a pleasure here. And I, I really appreciate the, uh, the message that you're sharing, especially around bullying. And I think this is a super important message, mindfulness, especially now with all the chaos and distraction we have in our lives. Sure. Uh, if you want to get to me, there go to www.majeedm.com. It's M-A-J-E-E-D-M.com. Yeah, that's a real easy website to go to. That's for sure. And once you go there, you'll be happy that you did. So thank you so much for joining us, Majid. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, just have a great rest of your day. Thank you, YouTubers. Okay, bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.